Well, why don't we get started? Thank you all for being here today. Um, I'm Anna Lowsby. I'm a property master. I've been working in film and television for the last 10 years. Um, and I'm a member of the Property Masters Guild, uh, which has been working to elevate the craft of property masters since 2021. Uh, and we have a global presence, although we are mostly based out here in LA. Um, so thank you for joining us. Thank you for supporting property masters everywhere. Uh, Mikey, are we recording? All right, we're recording today for our uh, PMG podcast, Prop Talk. Uh, so you will be able to hear this wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so please welcome today the property team of Oppenheimer. Hi. We have Guillaume Deloche, PMG property master, Greg Finnan, PMG property master and Pam Elie of History for Hire Prop House. Hey guys. Uh, so why don't each of you tell us uh, what your role was on this project and how you came into that role? Uh, so I'm uh, Guillaume, I'm the property master. Um, the short answer is Brad Einhorn turned the project down. The long <laughs> answer is um, I got a call from Ruth the Younger production designer to meet with her and uh, meet with Chris Nolan, the director. Uh, and at the end of that meeting, they hired me and um, I, I started work right away. We had a, a fairly short uh, pre-production time on this picture. Uh, we started in late no early November 21 and we went to camera in late January. So it was a very quick rushed um, start, but um, uh, fun project uh, on paper <laughs> nonetheless. Um, and um, the, uh, I'm sure you, if you're here, you know the property master is in charge of anything the actors touch or that touches the actors or that makes the story uh, move forward. So this is the role of the property master. So in this case, we had uh, quite a tall order to uh, tell that story. Uh, Greg? My name is Greg Finnan. Um, and we're just, there's two of us here, but, and then Pam, but, you know, I think we had a department of 12 mm -hmm. at least. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. some people in New Mexico and some people in LA, but uh, we're just the tip of the iceberg. So, and uh, my name is Pam Elier, and my husband and I own a prop house called History for Hire. Uh, Remy, who brought in the signs, he also works with us, and um, we will be working on multiple projects. But you know, I hate to say it, but some of the films you work on are a little bit more special than some of the others. And we were just wrapping Babylon when uh, your project came in. And it was like, who doesn't love to do atomic stuff? Who doesn't love to do nuclear? Um, we had worked on some uh, films prior. We had done uh, Fat Man and Little Boy with Paul Newman, which I think was probably late 80s, early 90s. And then uh, some of the actors in your movies, we had worked with Robert Downey Jr. We did Chaplin with him back in the 1990s. So this film just felt good in so many ways. Plus, uh, you know, Greg and, and Guillaume, they are the most delightful people to work with. And this was a hard show. This is a really hard show for you guys to do. <laughs> As, you know, but how hard is it to build an atomic bomb, really? <laughs> Took them three years and you had what, uh, six, eight, ten weeks of prep? Mm -hmm. Well, so a lot of times, you know, you, you, I don't know if you've seen the, um, we have the core at the PMG booth downstairs. Uh, there's different ways to approach these sort of big builds. Uh, you can go to vendors like Street for Hire, and, and we did, uh, or you can have a prop shop. The, typically, the, historically, the prop shop is run by the special effects department, and the property department 
relies on the prop shop to manufacture the big ticket items for the picture, um, which gives you the luxury of having the crew on set that built the, the actual object there when you're filming it, which is a plus. So in this case, we had our, our amazing uh, Scott Fisher, our, our special effects supervisor in his shop, uh, build the, the two gadgets and the core, uh, and that was, uh, that was the only way we were able to fit that enormous build within our time constraints. We started filming in LA in January uh, of uh, 22 with uh, a lot of the um, early um, chronological events in uh, Oppenheimer's life in England and, and and then we because there was a lot of there was a consideration for age makeup so we, we shot mostly in order um, Louisa Abel our, uh, and Jamie McIntosh our hair and makeup department who are just absolutely insanely talented um, did all of the uh, aging makeup which if you've seen the film was was pretty breathtaking. Uh, so we did that, then we promptly went to New Mexico where we filmed all of the Los Alamos, uh, Rad Lab, <coughs> and uh, Trinity Test scenes. And then we branched off from there. We went to New Jersey for the Princeton stuff. Uh, our crew branched off. We had people in LA, New Mexico, uh, New Jersey and New York, and then in LA also prepping the last phase of the Oppenheimer's life, which we filmed in LA for the last month and a half of filming. Uh, so it's, we're all over the place, there's a lot of moving parts, um, which makes it exciting, it's fun. So where do you start um, knowing that you have such a short time to prep and for such a long period of time, both in physical production and throughout Oppenheimer's life, how do you go about researching that? Like where do, where do you start after you get that script? Well, um, well, Chris is a very methodical director. Um, and when you prep with them, you prep with them. You're always with them every day. Uh, we also had the resources of our, our outstanding art department. Lauren Sandoval, our uh, researcher, compiled tens of thousands of documents for us to go through. Uh, so you, you draw on these resources. Um, the research, of course, is important. We bought every book we could find. Uh, but there's only so many hours in the day. The other thing is we, we had a cast, a principal cast of about 90 actors. Half of them were like global movie stars, so you you have to, we have these fittings with costumes. The great thing about props is you work with every other department with costumes, camera, stunts, etc. So we went every day to the fittings with Chris uh, and the talent, and then we looked at the actors and their costumes, and we started putting glasses on. The, the, to me, the, one of the greatest moments in this picture was um, Robert's first fitting as Louis Strauss. Uh, it was literally he came in just without any hair or anything, but we put him in the costume. Jimmy did the hair a little bit, and then we put these exact replicas of Lewis's glasses we got from the same company. And like that, because I, I, I plastered the walls of my office at Universal with hundreds of pictures of the actual people with the actor playing them, so I could get a little of reference. And so I've been looking at Lewis Strauss for a month by now, and he became Lewis Strauss in about 10 seconds. It was really incredible the the power that these actors have when you give them the right things uh, so we did that every day we had many 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 fittings uh, so that kind of broke the day a little bit and then we continued so you you have to have a great crew you have to delegate to you know greg and phil and rachel and everyone in the department to do all these different tasks because again there's only so many hours in the day and you have 90 characters that need 
watches, rings, they preferably they should match. They should have the, what, you know, you have to research whether the person smoked, whether they were married. Uh, we had to make these little badges, which seemed like nothing, but they meant something. And you can't just go to Chris and say, well, I don't know what it meant. <laughs> you have to figure out what the codes were. So we had to research that and manufacture not only those, which were done for different zones. They have a different badge when they're during the test with a red, um, the red outline. And we also had the photo IDs that every employees of Los Alamos had to have. So we had to take pictures of the cast in costumes and hair and makeup, black and white, treat them and make them into these little IDs. So all these little things have to happen during pre-production. So short answer is you just run with it. There's no method. <laughs> you just run and take a lot of notes and you delegate to all your great crew. And you know, fittings. So I'll talk about fittings, which I rarely had to go to. That was all these guys, but uh, it's a universal. It's in the costume department and it's one at a time. So it's not a cattle call. So every day there's three, four fittings because they have their time to get dressed and come in and be transported back and forth to wherever they live. And, mm -hmm. and so for weeks, Rachel and Guillaume and you know Phil running around in the background were just consumed by fittings. <coughs> and that was a big deal for us because everything else kind of was delegated to us to kind of do all the other research because like he cannot not be there. Like it's really important to be there. And also Chris doesn't want to talk to anybody other than the department head. So Guillaume was on set the entire shoot every day, every minute. And you know, he doesn't want to see us. He wants to see the guy mm -hmm. who's in charge. He doesn't mind seeing you. There's <laughs> 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 clear. We got yelled at him, but no, uh, no, he's you know he just wants accountability, and that's the guy who's accountable. Uh, no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so Greg, uh, while Guillaume was in these fittings with your 90 principal cast, what were you specifically researching? I was researching everything else. I don't know. Uh, a lot of background stuff. So the, there's the principal cast. You all know who they are. Um, but then there's our cast, all our background artists who have to bring the background to life. And they need things to do. They need things to hold. They need to look. You know, they just can't be standing there doing nothing. So they need stuff. So a lot of what I did in prep, initially, you know, I read the book. It was based on. I listened to the book on my commute to and from the office every day. We all did. I made everybody yeah. in the department and, do the same. You know, and then I get on the computer and I just. Ultimately, the thing you want the most. You can read about the stuff, but if you have a photograph. That you know of, the thing, then you can't beat that. And if somebody questions you, you can go. You know, mm -hmm. that's the. Mm -hmm. That's Oppenheimer. That's what he had, or this is what the machinist had, or whatever. So. And just to understand what they had. So barbed wire, I don't know what we did. Um. Well, the crane was, um, there's a moment in the film where they use a crane to hoist the core, the plutonium core, down into the lenses, into the what you saw downstairs. And it's this very specific uh, engine hoist from the 30s um, that was manufactured in Michigan that the guys at Los Alamos had widened so that it, the gadget would fit in it. 
So it's like, well, you know, something like this, usually I'd say, well, let's just build one from scratch, we'll look at the photos, we'll measure, we'll figure out the dimensions. Well, he found one a mile from our office in, in Sunland, in the valley, mm. which was like really bizarre. So we got it, we modified it, and it was just, you know, so a lot of things like this, the crew will, will do. You, there's a list of things we have to accomplish today, and so they will scour the earth, literally. We bought things from all over the world, we always generally do. And, um, you know, we, uh, you know, and it's loading trucks with the tens of thousands of things from Pam's shop and, and other prop houses. And um, the, the one, one funny anecdote, when I met, the day I met Chris, the very first time during the interview, I had no idea I was hired, but apparently I was because the first thing he said, we, we need to find an oscilloscope from 1925 that mm -hmm. works. And, and I was like, okay, sure. Um, so I immediately called Pam, and they had one, and we spent the better part of pre-production making it work. And mm -hmm. Greg, wanna, you have to, you're the one that was operating it. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Pam actually talked to the oscilloscope museum guy. Like you had somebody that you were talking to. Yeah. There's an oscilloscope museum, by the way, yeah. just in case. Yeah. Do, yeah. Yeah. do we know where, where in the world okay. that is? Uh, you know what? I used a burner phone when I call him. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> We're safe. We're safe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of forensic research. Like, there's a crappy movie of Trinity of, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of blue and, you know, it's grainy and you can't really tell. And I went through and I would just do frame grabs and blow them up to the point where, I mean, it's fuzzy, but you can kind of see something. And, you know, there were these big round bales underneath the bomb and they were hoisting the gadget. And we're like, what the heck? And we figured out that they're... They were army issue mattresses that they rolled up and wrapped in blankets and then banded. And then we went to Pam and she had a mm -hmm. bunch of old ducky, you know, surplus mattresses and we made a dozen of those things. Mm -hmm. And then the you could see the crane and it's in a couple shots, but you can't really see the whole thing. And so we figured out what it, you know, you, I spent a day just finding out what that thing was. It was an Acme crane that was made in Chicago or something. Dayton. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, that's right, Dayton. You know, we found, I found one online in London, and it was refurbished and beautiful and painted black, and it was, you know, I think it was, it had sold at auction for $10,000, mm. which is, and I'm going, oh, geez, like, you know, and for, let me back up. This is a low-budget movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every Chris Nolan movie is a low-budget movie. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he has, he makes deals with the studios or whatever, and he brings it in ahead of schedule and under budget. But, you know, this wasn't like a big major Thor. You yeah, know. you can't just say, hi, you spent $10,000, here's $15,000 no. plus shipping I needed on Tuesday. You have a very <laughs> small amount of money to get yeah. the world. So you can't get the world. So we ended up finding, luckily, it was just a fluke uh, at a junkyard, you know, like Guillaume said, mm -hmm. a mile from our shop. but. You know, and then Scott Fisher, we gave it to him, and he modified it to match the thing in the movie. But you know, that's you see those, and you just spend a lot of time looking at those photos and trying to find out what that is and what they had. And, yeah, it's reassuring to know that the world's most powerful army, building the most powerful weapon ever, was using rolled-up mattresses in case it fell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, but it's true. There is true. a photograph. That, while we were filming, I I, I was. Um, I was having fun taking continuity photos. We take continuity photos, so that scene to scene, we sometimes don't shoot scenes in order. 
So you don't want to have someone's water bottle here and then here and then back here. So you take company pictures and you make sure it, it, it blends in with everything else. So I had a, a lot of the research photos in mind that were black and white photos. So every time we had a, a perfect still, I would take a picture of it. And then I would compare it with the research photo. And a lot of times they're the same thing. The, the, the shot of the, the bomb being hoisted with the tape on it and, and then the mattresses underneath, that's a, that's a, a real research photo. We matched it exactly. It was, it's, it's spectacular. Uh, the film wasn't exactly a low-budget film, but it was lower than Chris is usually is used to work with. But the thing with Chris Nolan is that everything you see, everything you spend, every penny you spend is on screen. There's absolutely no, um, nothing is superfic superficial, superfluous, or everything is there. Um, and that's, that's testament to his talent and, and really working hard to get things right and to put things on screen. Um, you know, he, Chris made a lot of sacrifices. Uh, a director wants time, more time with his cast to be able to get the best out of him. And he sacrificed some days of filming so we could build Los Alamos, so we had the money to do that. Um, there's a lot of the stuff that, those kinds of discussions that happen in pre-production when we, you know, we have these meetings and, and uh, you think sometimes the future of the film sometimes is in the balance. I mean, I've been on a few projects that where we had the meeting and then we went home after that. Mm. Um, and so we, you know, with Chris, you know you're in good hands and, and he'll do his part. So that's also, uh, you know, the great qualities of leaders that everybody's gonna wanna do their part because he did his, so that's, you know, mm -hmm. so it it's, makes it a very um, unique experience. Anna, can I, can I add something yes, here please. about the fine work these two guys do? Um, so I mentioned in um, 1990, we worked with Sir Richard Attenborough when he did uh, Chaplin with Robert Downey Jr. And he had just come off of doing Gandhi, and Gandhi was a very big movie at the time, won lots of awards. And um, Attenborough told me, he said, you know, people learn their history from the movies. They will never crack a book. And I think it is such a testament that anybody who watches this movie, they're going to learn some pretty good history. I, th I think the research is so accurate that it's just wonderful. Well, I think that you and History for Hire are a really big part of that for everyone because you have these... We, we're, we're a part. We're yeah. part of the pie. Part of the pie. You, you have these mattresses that Guillaume and Greg can roll up. Yes, we carry old, dirty mattresses that are falling apart. <laughs> that match the research We're thinking about perfectly. changing our, our website and featuring that right off. <laughs> uh, so when Guillaume comes to you and says, hey, I've got, I've got Oppenheimer, what, what do you and your team do? Well, I, I'm, I can't believe you haven't mentioned this, Guillaume. I think the first thing I asked is, can we see a script? And why couldn't we see a script, Guillaume? I couldn't see a script. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of those kinds of pictures that are very, uh, you know, kind of very secretive. So you, the, the first phase of reproduction, you have to go read the script. Um, I mean, and they give you a script that's read, that can be copied, that you can, you need like three pairs of glasses to read it. Um, and so that's just to, to maintain, make sure that nothing leaks and every, there was a lot of anticipation, a lot of expectation with this film. So I couldn't share with the vendors and only a select few in the crew were allowed to read the script. And it's not just Chris, it's happened countless times on countless movies where you just can't have. Believe it or not, I worked on the 1997 Godzilla movie and we also couldn't get the script. <laughs> I don't know why, but we couldn't get that. Uh, so, um, so yeah, we couldn't uh, really give her a script. Um, it, it helps vendors sometimes to catch the vibe, and it saves us a little bit of time. We always do a breakdown. 
I think this was the largest prop breakdown I've ever done, and it was like 25 pages, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. But. So it breakdown, you know, it's a 180-page script, three-hour film, 180 pages, one minute uh, per page, and so you have to break down everything. Not everything is on the page. You have to, if it says, well, there's a crowd of laborers at uh, Los Alamos, so it's like, okay, so 10 carpenters, five masons, three electricians, so you have to add that to your breakdown. So it's like a 10 toolboxes, three bikes, this, that. Um, so we give, we give them that document, which kind of tells a story. We try our best to do that. Um, but keep in mind, the most important part of uh, film and pre-production is the budget. Forget the breakdown. Mm. The budget, the studio is the most important part. So we have to do that as well. And we work with our vendors, uh, or rather they work with us <clears throat> to accomplish all these things. Uh, and then, you know, props can be rented, purchased or manufactured, stolen in some cases. <laughs> I, I started my career in horror films and we had literally nothing, so we stole everything. So. Mm -hmm. but, um, but uh, History for Hire is a very big part of that. And after you get that breakdown from Guillaume, uh, what do you do? Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. You had a scene that takes place in Cambridge, I believe, correct? Yeah. And, and you filmed that in New Jersey, was it? Uh, actually, we filmed in L.A. and Cambridge. For that, that particular scene. Yeah. So, and it was supposed to be in 1925. What, when was it? 25. 1925. So you try to think, you know, people talk about that, okay, what can we do to make that look different than UCLA does today? And one of the things that came up were, well, let's do these very British book straps, these leather book straps. And we have some really talented prop makers at History for Hire that made these custom leather book straps that, you know, you didn't watch the movie and go like, wow, those book straps are awesome. But, you know, it That's adds, what I said when I first saw them. Yeah, awesome. but they add to the scene. But I'm going to tell you a funny story based upon what you just said that Brad Einhorn turned the story down. So Brad Einhorn saw those book straps on your decker to go out on the show. And he goes, who's getting those? I went, Guillaume. And he goes, I want them. And I went, He's getting them. They're going on gadgets. So I had to make them new ones. I think Brad was doing Perry Mason. Yeah, yeah. Something like, he was Perry Mason, yeah. 1925 is tricky because you're thinking 1930, you're thinking King Kong, the Model T, all this stuff. It's yeah. not. 1925 is really weird. It's like still 1800s almost. And it's only a few years removed. And, and it's those things that everyone instinctively knows because of the movies. Because you've seen a movie in the 20s, Roaring 20s, and you've seen movies in the 30s, but it's very, those are two very different eras in terms of technology and how you translate that on screen. This movie used technology to tell you what period this is. The other thing that, excuse the term, but really, really sucked is that for a long time, license plates had the year on them. It wasn't a sticker, now it's a sticker, so it's nothing, it's put in a sticker. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and we jumped years quite a bit. So every time we jumped year and during the day, I had to replay 35 antique cars with the worst possible hardware. We had mm -hmm. no fingernails left. Mm -hmm. And it was like, ah, oh, sure, we're in 42 now, it's different. It's, uh, yeah. And the same state had their own thing. So anyway, uh, anecdote, but it's something you have to think of. And, yeah. Well, and you need to make sure that you have the staffing to get that done quickly and hey yeah. we've got one scene in 1942 and another in 1943 on the same day so how do you build your prop crew uh knowing that very carefully <laughs> <laughs> well um i'm of the idea that if i travel to a different state or a different country i'm a guest there uh i'm not a big fan of interviews and things just so i usually try to get the most recommended person and then hire them and if they're comfortable with us, hire whoever you like to work with. I'm not going to tell you who to hire. It's your, your pawn. Your, your. 
So, because uh, we're, again, we're guests there. So they're gonna, they're stuck with us. So I'd rather if they have a crew they're, they're happy with and they bring. So we did that in New Mexico uh, with um, Derek Benson Haver and his crew, Megan Brown and Alyssa, uh, Jade Ortiz and uh, Alyssa, whose last name I forgot. And they were fantastic. And same thing in New York with uh, Tommy Janoulis and his crew. Uh, and that's been, I've been very successful with having that approach with, um, you know, hiring local talent where, where we travel. Uh, and, you know, you, if you go with someone who's got good recommendations and they know their job, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty, uh, it's an easy thing to, to figure out, I guess. Yeah, tr trust the locals. Yeah, trust the mm -hmm. locals, exactly. Uh, so going back to history for hire, mm -hmm. um, I understand that after you get this breakdown, uh, you look through you s your stock, uh, bring it to Guillaume, and have a very big show and tell. Yeah, so when, when you have a show where, where your items are going to be instrumental to that show, you, you'll do a show and tell. Like when we did Babylon, Damien Chazelle came over and, and the prop master on that who was Gabe Perella, and we, we lay out everything how we think the show, sh options that the show can look like. We, we don't choose, the client chooses. And then for Guillaume, you know, he said these are the things we're going to be hitting in Oppenheimer, so we will pull everything out so that he can see things of that time period and we can start fine-tuning because you know um, I haven't read the script Guillaume has he's one of the few people who has read the script and so you you need to look at things how do they culturally fit in within that show you know we were talking about Cambridge a minute ago about you know how the 20s looked back then well the 20s looked a lot different in the US than it did in England that was decimated by World War One so you kind of have to think culturally how they look um, I, I guess really the funniest thing that I can think about of the show and tell was just how many booze bottles and martini glasses we had to pull for it. I think we did more of that than of anything else at your show and tell. And it still wasn't enough. Yeah, it wasn't enough. Well, cigarettes and martini was constituted the Oppenheimer household diet. Like 95% of anything yeah. they consumed was tobacco and booze. Um, so yeah, it was show and tells are, are are great. I love show and tells because that's when you have your time with the director, and they get to touch things and feel things, and and so, you know, you, you it can be as simple as the director coming into your office every day looking at things, or it can be, we we don't just do Oppenheimer type movies. We did Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter mm -hmm. with uh, mm -hmm. with Pam, mm -hmm. and for that we had a huge. We had people making cotton and making clothes. We had a can. We fired a cannon in the warehouse. We had all this stuff. Uh, so it can be that. I also did one, I did the show and tell in Michael Biss driveway in Bel Air one time because he just <laughs> showed up there. So you have to adapt and you have to load everything and do this like garage sale type thing. And, mm -hmm. and, but it is the time for the director to actually touch tangible props and things and look at textures and colors and weight. Um, Chris was particularly attentive to the news cameras. Uh, the cameras that were in the bunker during the Trinity test were high-speed cameras. And then the cameras that you see in the various um, congressional hearings that take place. Uh, and, um, and so History for Hire just happens to have probably the most complete collection of uh, vintage and working cameras we had. Uh, they actually had the exact models that were in the bunker. They had the exact same also radios. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the better pictures I took on set was of our radio room, because that's the, pretty much the only uh, archive photo that exists. <coughs> the Trinity test was those guys in the radio room in the bunker. 
So we were able to recreate it to a T, and if you put our picture and the real picture, it's mm -hmm. the exact same thing, uh, with the exception of the little cl clock, countdown clock, that was a last minute edit thing. Um, so the cameras were, were a big thing, and Chris wanted to see them, so we had them set up for the show and tell. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, they sell the idea that you're, again, you're selling a period. You're in the 50s now. There's the very first video of television cameras with the big cables and the three lenses that you crank down if you want to close up. Mm -hmm. uh, and those, again, they were all practical. Everything worked. Uh, like this practical camera that we have here yes, like, on site? Uh, yeah, so we brought, th we brought this today. This is one of the cameras that they used. And um, it's a speed graphic camera. And I think there's a lot of Star Wars fans here who will recognize this side thing as Luke Skywalker's saber, yeah, from the first Star Wars. But um, this particular camera we've had for years, um, we did use it back in Chaplin on 1990. I thought kind of fun how we used it in that film with him, and then now we use it in your film with him. We used so. it in a movie we did in 2000, also Road to Perdition. Uh, oh, Road to Perdition, yeah. camera was, came from your collection. Oh, that's really great. Uh, so I, can I, can I ask one question, too? Do props change performance? What do you think? I think that they absolutely do, yeah. especially with a technical prop that you need to know how to use and also perform. I, I have found in my work with actors, it makes a big difference. How about you? Yeah, I think it's the most important, you know, it's, it's not the most important thing, but uh, we're not the most important department, but we what think we, we are. give, <laughs> we, we do. Uh, what we give Some an actor allows the actor to inhabit that role. So the better it is, the more authentic it is, the more real, the more, the older it is, the, you know, like it means a lot to them. You know, it's funny, we had a, had a conversation with Robert Downey Jr. about his character. And we see him over the course of three different eras. We see him, and it's in the film it's a little bit reversed because we see him in Princeton first, and then we see him you know, right after the war. So, uh, and uh, Louis Strauss is a very manicured, very tailored, like bespoke kind of guy. And so we had these high-end Swiss watches for him that were, again, the, what he, the actual guy was wearing, just his glasses. Um, but the, the one prop that he really wanted, was very happy with, was this little vintage little uh, notebook and pen, little gold pen, because he felt that Louis Strauss is the kind of guy who just makes lists of people he doesn't like. <laughs> and, uh, that checks out. And, that, and again, it, it brought the character something for him, for his, you know, and we, you know, we often say, I mean, I, I had uh, David Morse uh, thank me one day on set on a movie because I had put this character's name in a phony address and thing in, in a checkbook and, and his wallet had credit cards with him. We never saw that. But he said, thanks for doing that. It's really cool and we'll never see it. But it's not, it's the, you know, again, you help build a character. The, actually, the, the motto of the Prop Master's Guild that we build character. Uh, and so even if you don't see it, uh, with Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, I, I hired uh, a gun maker, a musket maker from Kentucky to make uh, this axe that turns into a shotgun, and he bejeweled the inside. I guess you'll never see it, but it was, you know, so it's the little things like that. You go a little bit the distance, and it, and it does, with certain actors, it really makes a difference for them. Uh, and they, you know, and if it's, the, if it's authentic, if it's original, I mean, I could give you countless examples. You know, Mission Commander, we had pistols that were original and they worked, and, and so the actors knew they were holding a piece of history, and, and that makes a difference. So same thing with this film. I think it helped um, trying to be accurate and, and do the real thing. 
uh, was a little bit better for them. Absolutely. Uh, now, Greg, you had to work with some of the background actors with these cameras. Um, and of course, as you've said, Chris Nolan is very picky about having everything look right, look like these people know what they're doing. Uh, so how, how was that process on set for you? Um, well, first, you try to corral them ahead of time, and you do a crash course on photojournalism in the 30s, and you try to teach them how to handle the camera. Uh, this doesn't have Go ahead. the film. You know, it's like, oh, where's our little thing? Mm -hmm. So we. part of the thing is you get a, you know, a cloth, cotton rag. little cotton rag, and when they pop the thing, it's hot. And then they can take it out with a rag and dispose of it or throw it down. Why don't you get shoot it towards the ceiling? Oh, yeah. Uh, flash warning for anyone yeah, who may be sensitive. Yeah, don't look at it. So that's it. Yeah. And then they take out their handkerchief and they pop it in like that because it's super hot. It's very hot. Put it in their pocket, take out another one, put it in. So And there's different kinds. There's like the clip-in kind or the bayonet kind. So you have to teach them how to do that. And then... Mostly what you're trying to get with this is just the flash. Like that's what the DP wants. That's what they're shooting is, you know, that classic look. You've seen it in Scorsese movies, some Hulk movies. Um, but if you want to go a step further, a real photographer would have a film holder with two sheets of four by five film. And in that film holder, there's a slide that has to come out. So, you know, you take the slide out, you aim, you take the thing, and then you put the slide in, you take it out, you flip it, you put it in, take the other slide on the other side out. And, you know, that's a small detail that you may or may not catch. Like, you may see it on film, and some people may go, oh my God, they're not even like changing the film, they just keep popping stuff. Like, that's fake. And most people won't notice it, but a few people out there will. <laughs> so, it's you, know, you guys. These isn't are it? people. These are <laughs> yeah, extras. Like they've never done this before. Yeah. They've yeah. maybe yeah. never done a period show. So you do a little, spend an hour or two doing crash course and teaching them. And then throughout the day, you're constantly reminding them how to do it and going in, giving them fresh bulbs and resetting them and running around. The flash bulbs are important because they um, they burn longer, and so the a camera shutter will actually catch them. You know, sometimes if you look at gunfire, you don't always see a flash because the shutter, depending on the speed that, uh, at which you're filming, it will not catch it. So that's why DP's directors prefer the... And even if we do a modern film with modern cameras, we often have these paddles that have a dozen of these uh, flash bulbs and we pop them. Um, there's a really great shot of, uh, in the trailer, I think I just saw on TV, where they see us with the paddles following Killian in the hallway to give the impression that there's more flashballs going off. Because you, if you just do it, it's just one at a time. It's really boring, so you want to have that multitude. Uh, but Greg's, one of Greg's tasks was to train our extras in all things technical, whether it was working with cameras or working with tools and explosives and all this stuff. It was uh, it's very important to um, give the extras the attention they deserve and give them activities that that are great and stunt as well, stunt players as well. All right, yeah. let's go ahead. I was kind of the strike force. Rarely on, sometimes I would go to set, but that's Guillaume's territory. But I would be sent ahead to dress the bunker with all the cameras and make sure those things work. Or 
set up all the press cameras at the Senate hearing. All the horrible jobs you know, that wants to yeah. do. You know, getting all the logistics of getting all that junk in there. No, it's not junk. I love it. <laughs> you know, and set up and arranged and dressed. We have something to talk about at lunch now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, and then teaching people how to look good doing it. But you know, also, one of the reasons movies are so expensive, this bulb that he just flashed off, they haven't made these for years. These cost $7 each now. And then how many bulbs were you going through? You know, probably... 5,000, I think. Yeah, 5,000, you know, there you go. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, the FedEx bill for shipping them out to New Mexico was steep, too. Mm-hmm. Overnighting more, we'd run out of bulbs and we'd need more. When we, we were working on King Kong with Peter Jackson in New Zealand, and we had to overnight 10,000 bulbs to New Zealand. That was not cheap. It's like, that'll, that'll kill your budget real yeah. quick. They live in the but future, so you're okay. You got like a, a minute to... And you don't have to ship them back. <laughs> nice. Right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the central prop, the gadget, uh, the thing that the Trinity test was about. Can you tell us a little bit about the design process there? Yeah, so obviously, if you're doing Oppenheimer, you're gonna build an atomic bomb. It's, um, we didn't go, with, we, very, we saw very little of Fat Man, Little Boy, we saw a crate being pulled. We, had, we, we rented them actually from uh, Pam, they already manufactured them. Um, so the gadget, that was the, the big thing. We had to show the atomic bomb being built, and there's different components to it. There's testing. Uh, this thing you, that is downstairs that has these, um, this tech football, these are called lenses, and they're multiple uh, layered explosives that will shoot inward into a plutonium core, which will then detonate, create a chain reaction, and there's your atomic uh, bomb. Very simplified. I'm a prop guy, not a physicist. <laughs> uh, so speaking of physicists, we enlisted the chair of the physics department at UCLA to help us write all the equations and also make sense of the experiments. So we'll get that in a minute. Um, so, at, so we had to find blueprints of this bomb. And believe it or not, it's declassified. So we actually found mm. there's a book that has most of the components, including the detonators, that, that exist. So we had Justin Miller, uh, who is a, um, an illustrator, uh, who works uh, with a 3D machine and, and so forth. So he built us a file of every component of this bomb. And then we had our prop shop in LA, Scott Fisher's uh, FX company, grow in a 3D printer or on a five-axis router or a sculpt by hand, make all these components and assemble them. So we made the uh, lenses for the football. We made the plutonium core and the little carriers they come in. Uh, it's, it's, it's also shocking to see how casual they were back then with this kind of stuff, just to put it in a wooden box and took it to the thing. Uh, we built the crane, and then we built two gadgets. So one that was incomplete, that was lighter, that was to be hoisted in this 100-foot uh, tower we built in the desert in New Mexico. Um, and then we built the finished gadget with removable detonators so we can see the team because that was the last piece of the puzzle, was to assemble the detonators, connect all the wiring, and then you have a series of switches around the, you see the teams at night in the storm, putting the switches on and turning the bomb on. Um, so for the gadget that uh, arrives at the site, and that's hoisted, uh, again, I tasked, um, it was a heinous job, so I tasked Greg with it. Uh, we figured out that they actually had it wrapped in black visqueen, and this material existed in the 40s. They wrapped rifles in it for Marines and so forth. And so we found the material, and he found the most badass blowtorch I've ever seen. It was like a, it was like a Ghostbusters proton <coughs> thing. 
and I made some of them, so I know. So tell us about how that how that worked, how you did that. It was a 3M product. They invented heat shrink. Um, I found black boat wrap that people that are into boats or big equipment can wrap their stuff, and then somebody makes a giant. It's actually made in France. It's diabolical. <laughs> Uses a big propane tank, and it just heats the stuff. So uh, we got this stuff overnighted, we wrapped it, kind of taped it up and then heat shrunk it and made it look like it did in real life and then we did a test. Uh, you know, I filmed a little test on my phone and sent it to Guillaume and he showed Chris maybe, I don't you know. Mm -hmm. And then we did one take and that was that. And we, you know, part of it is being able to reset the bomb you know, after it's shrink wrapped, it gets. Oh, and I'm sorry, each train. It was the shrink wrap Olympics there for a minute, because I had him like, it's like we're, we're we're screwed if it takes more than five minutes. We so we had it down to like nothing, and then of course it was a one taker. That was perfect. Let's go, let's move on. Yeah, a lot. If you have one, they want fifteen. If you have twenty-seven, oh, you're good. With one, you're good. <laughs> Uh, so after you have this whole design process, you know, you're doing all your research, you get these things built, you bring them to set, uh, you have all of your resets ready. What happens if someone's not happy or someone changes their mind? Did you have any instances of needing to change something last minute? You look for the nearest airport. <laughs> and, uh, well, well, I mean, there's always going to be changes. Look, our, our job is, uh, part of our job is to never say no. You're not here to say no. If you're here to say no, do something else, not the, the place to say no. So, you know, you can always have, you know, we have prop makers with us on set. We have talented people. We have painters. We have resources. So if something's not great, then fix it. We can fix it there. And, and it's often the case. I mean, you, a lot of things um, that you see that people think look amazing were literally gum and like a hot glue gun and, and a prayer. And it's just uh, <laughs> it's this thing. Um, but... Um, you know, we, we travel these things by truck, uh, and you don't sleep for a week because it's, it's, it's the thing that the whole movie hinges on is on a truck somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, you get it to set, you get it set up. Uh, we, we had a weekend, uh, we worked a, a whole weekend to set it up in the tower shed. And that's when the film came to life a little bit for me because it was, you know, it was just like weight off your shoulder, you've delivered the gadget to Los Alamos and it's in the shed, it's ready to be, so you did your job, it's there. Thank, you know, thank God. And so, you know, you, and then we, you wait for the director to walk through the set and you're not breathing for half an hour. And then if he's happy, you shoot it. Now, were there ever any instances that you had to change something last minute? The clock, that was fun. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah, what, what happened there? Is there, is, it seems like there's some trauma or? No, I mean, it, Chris was fixated on the, you know, the tubes, the countdown clock. He really wanted a countdown timer. And he used it a lot in the promo of the movie. It just was everywhere. But we had one made, Guillaume ordered one up. And I don't think there was a countdown timer. Or maybe there was, but we don't. No it was really a, knows. well, there was. It was a, a bell, and it didn't really work with the action narrative that we were after. And so we, even though the bunker was as accurate as can be, I mean, there's still a lot of areas of the bunker we don't know. There's, there were no records of it. Uh, we came very close, but the timer thing, I think it was a, a, I mean, at the end of the day, Chris even said, we're not making a documentary. You know, we're making a film, and it's got to be entertaining, and there has to be an element of, 
suspense and thrills and things. So the clock was there for that. It was just a, the Nixie clock thing, I think, is a little bit anachronistic, but it works for there, for that, that thing. We had one, we had Studio Art and Technology of, based in Sunland, uh, based of the ISS group, manufacture one in a hurry. They also made the push button thing. The, um, and uh, once Chris saw it, he figured it was a little bit wonky and he wanted to integrate it as part of one of the radios, the military radios, which is a great idea. So that's what you end up seeing. So I had, um, you had like a whole hour, I think, at lunch to do that. <laughs> I had him rebuild it. Took like three weeks for a shop of 20 people to do it. And he, in one hour, he rebuilt like a perfect little box on top of the radio and that's what we filmed. And, and uh, a lot of time these things have to be on a remote control so you can control the, the, uh, the speed and the rate and, so forth, and what time you want. So it was a little bit tricky to work, but we, we got it done. Yeah, I think we set it up in the control room of the bunker and Chris came through and he saw it and he didn't like it. And he said, you know, just can't you put it onto that thing, which was like an old radio. And we're like, sure. Yeah. And so we took it back and with... Hold my beer. <laughs> and basically just took this, we bought the radio. I think it was a rental from Pam. And I took the back off and gutted it and took mm -hmm. a Dremel and just, you know, made room in it and then cut a hole in the top and then took that thing off. Because there's, you know, you see the little timers, you'll see it out there. Um, but beneath it, there's a whole bunch of gack under there that helps it run that you don't want to mess up. So we had mm -hmm. to make room and stick it on there and then put it on set and he liked it, so. And that is on display in our prop museum over in West Hall, so come by and see it. Uh, so you have a pretty fast prep, pretty fast shoot. I think 65 days was your shoot? I think less, 59, like I think. 59 days? Yeah. That's fast. It's lightning fast. Um, then everything gets wrapped up things go back to pam things go into storage into our prop museum eight months later a year later you're sitting in a theater what's going through your mind as you get to see the final project mortal language no um <laughs> no well it's it's very it's it's always a little hard to watch something you've worked on especially something like that I didn't have that same, I worked on Soul Plane when I saw the movie, it was fun, you know? Uh, but Oppenheimer, yeah, I mean, you, you just want to see that your stuff is in there. You know, you, I, I'm, a, I'm a really good, I like the popcorn, I like the whole experience, so I, I don't want to look at props, I just want to watch the movie, but it's hard not to when you've done this. So, you know, it's, it, it was an accomplishment. I mean, we worked very hard, a lot of people worked very hard. I mean, this Chris, uh, you know, you you on a Chris Nolan movie, you're you're working. You're not there to uh, this. You know, Chris doesn't allow director's chairs on set, which is amazing. It's, mm. it's great for our department. Um, <laughs> so yeah. there's there's no one just on their village. phone with a latte at Video Village. He doesn't allow that. Um, there's no Video Village. He has a little um, those little things from the '80s, a little Watchman with a TV screen in him. That's how you watch the. That's how the monitor he has, um, and um, you know you. You just work hard, when these, and the days are very rarely over 12 hours, so it's also very human. Because afterwards, we have to watch dailies with them, because it's old school, we're shooting it on film. And so we go watch the dailies, which is great, because you get to see what you did the day before. And it's, that's how it used to be. Now the dailies usually come in in your email, and then you go to a website, and since you're home and you're just, you know, you're not, you know, but if you go to the dailies, it's, you actually watch them. And that's a great part of the process, working with Chris. Um, so no, I mean it was uh, you know we're very proud of this. Uh, 
we're, we're amazed at how well it did and you know for a historical film but so i'm going to talk about the schedule the first ad's job on a movie is to schedule every day with every actor and every scene and that creates this bible and there's it's impossible to truly prep an entire movie within prep so you rely on like what you do is you get ready for the first day then you make sure your first week is on the trailer and then you push forward there so there's always prep throughout the movie and you rely on the fact <coughs> that this is going to be on a certain day that you have two weeks to do this well chris moves really fast does maybe one or two maybe three takes and he's always bringing up work you know he'll finish by two o'clock and then go okay what, what else can we do let's do this so you can't rely like you have to be ready at all times for everything that might happen in that location and that was a big challenge just you know it like that's what we spent most of our time is just being prepared way ahead of time for anything chris might pull forward and carry a defibrillator for me um, <laughs> the, um, one of the things too with with the schedule is you know we we try to be smart about it and and when things move up we always tell them like you know we have a big food scene, like try to not schedule it the Monday after a holiday, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, because obviously we have to cook. Food is part of our, of our job and they all invariably, they say, yeah, yeah, sure, no man. And by the time you get to the goldenrod color on the schedule, it's like Labor Day, oh, food scene, like thanks. Yeah. So you end up spending your, you know. Uh, the schedule is quite possibly the most important document you're gonna read after the script because it's gonna tell you exactly what to do and when. And that's, that's usually what I carry more than my script, I'll carry the schedule in my pocket because it'll help you figure out when things are due, when things are, you know, have to arrive and so forth. Um, and, uh, but yeah, Chris shoots very fast, few takes, he knows exactly what he wants. Um, and it's... And that's that. That's that. Mm -hmm. uh, at this time, I'd love to open it up to any audience questions. As I said before, we are recording a podcast, so please tell me your name, and then I'm going to repeat your question into a microphone before our panel answers. Yes. Wait, never mind. We've got a microphone for you. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, great panel. Um, this is a bit of a sobering industry question, but I was curious for you guys, in the weeks since the SAG strike ended, how has the prop business been? Has it been like the floodgates open, Hollywood's getting back to work, or has it been a ramping up period and it's slow? Um, so um, this has been a devastating strike for our industry, for people who own small businesses, and, and of course, for all the craftspeople. Um, so once the strike ended, uh, the first thing that we came back were shows that weren't finished. So uh, that was mostly episodic and TV series and all that. I think really what we're seeing now is that after the first of the year is when big production will start coming back again. So we probably have about another four weeks of, of kind of medium level. Plus, our industry shuts down Christmas to New Year's, I think, anyway. So yeah, we only have a couple more weeks of shooting. That's why pre-production's short. Yeah. So you have to catch up. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Up here. Mikey Trudell with a microphone. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing um, so much of what went on behind the scenes. Um, I was really curious uh, for, was there like a certain like iconic prop that I guess compelled you to like pursue your passion for like prop being prop master or 
of a certain favorite prop that you've worked on? No. <laughs> when I got into this, I went to film school and thought I'd be a DP and went to a little low budget TV show in San Diego and tried to get work there doing electric or learning lamps or whatever, and they didn't want to talk to me. And I knew somebody on a prop truck, so I just started hanging out on the prop truck. And, you know, every day, and I interned for three months for free just to be on a set, just to see stuff happen. And, you know, I grew up building models as a kid and, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And every day on the truck, there was some new thing. I mean, that's what's great about props is that every day it's different. Every day there's a new thing that you have to learn about or figure out or do. It's not like you're doing the same job repetitively all the time. And, you know, like there was a guy who was throwing their pager into the ocean because he was sick of, you know, silk stockings. Great mm -hmm. show, mm -hmm. some of you remember. Um, and the prop master only had one pager and we're like, oh, what are we gonna do? It's gone if we throw it in there. So I got some wood and some black tape and cut up a bunch of stuff and I made a bunch of fake pagers on the fly and nobody could tell. Mm. And then the next day there was some other thing and every day I'm like, you know, was better than the first day. Like, wow, I can do this. Like this is, I never even thought of this. And it's turned out to have given me a career. You know. They throw props in the water a lot. I had to throw. <laughs> I, I, I had Jonah Hill throw a flip phone in War Dogs in the ocean in Miami. I had one of the guys on Six Underground throw his 1911 into the Abu Dhabi harbor. It's like, it's just, what's with the water? Like, I've never, th have you, anybody here thrown anything in the water in Negra? I haven't. No. <laughs> Personally, I haven't, but. Yeah. What about you, Pam? Uh, a favorite prop? Yeah, what, or what got you in? What was your moment? Oh, when I saw Star Wars the first time. I knew, I knew. You know, you want a little Star Wars background? So I knew John Dykstra and I knew Rick Baker, but I went to, there was a premiere at, um, where was it, 20th Century Fox Studios for Star Wars. John Williams played there and everything, and it was a fundraiser for the kids' school where Harrison Ford's kids went and the Kurtz's kids went, and I sat behind Carrie Fisher, and during the film, every time she came on the screen, she went like this. <laughs> and so it got so that she knew when she was going to come in and she would hide her head. I go, she's going to be in this scene. <laughs> and I remember um, Harrison Ford wore brown shoes with black brown shoes with black tuxedo. So that's my memory of it. <laughs> yeah, but it was Star Wars got that's me in. That's pretty great. Fashion faux pas. All right, yeah. I see a question over here. I uh, love the film, by the way, but uh, I was curious with uh, this film specifically, but other films, was there any props or information you guys maybe were still off limits to because of the secrecy of the Manhattan Project and maybe you guys had to wing it still? Or were you guys open to all of the information that they used as well? Uh, I mean, it, it's, you know, we most of this stuff is declassified it's not i mean uh, you know i i've actually worked at uh, sandia labs for a more modern film when we had to have a security clearance and so forth but for this picture no it was really just historical you know accuracy and historical research uh we did have certain things we just could not find uh, a good research photo of it because so certain things were not uh, declassified like, like the the coding system for the badges so we deducted it from 
photos of uh, the various characters in, in, in the period and what the numbers were, so we figured out the system. Uh, but otherwise, anything like technical and physics, we, like I said, we hired uh, the chair of the Department of Physics at UCLA uh, to write all of the equations, the, the blackboards and all the books and all the notes were a big part of this movie and they have to tell a story. And we had Kip Thorne on the set, who's a physicist who works with Chris a lot. He did Tenet, did the Interstellar. Uh, so we had to have that. And I, I, I'm a prop guy because I sucked at math. I mean, let's be, <laughs> you know, it's, I'd be a dentist if I. Would. Anyway, um, so um, so we had we hired this gentleman who was amazing and and um, and did all this all of this work. Um, but uh, yeah, to answer your question, no, we really didn't have to deal with that. Um, even though it's kind of a sensitive matter, we built. Uh, there's the Chicago pile, um, which is, was the pile of material they, they manufactured the plutonium with in Chicago that you see them visit. And uh, there was actually amazing pictures of that. So we recreated, we got the right camera, the right tripod uh, for that, and you see it in a the corner. They've, that's where they first meet um, Rami Malek's character, whose name I'm forgetting now. But um, So that was a really cool scene, and, and we were able to do uh, really cool work recreating stuff with Pam's um, mm -hmm. Pam's help. Yeah, on a side note, the Chicago pile was called a pile because they just piled lead bricks on top of each other, mm. and it was two stories. And our construction department, you know, we built half of it in a basement downtown, and then they put mirrors on the ground to make it look to mm. as a, a really down and dirty optical illusion. I mean, there was no VFX on the movie. Everything, I guess Chris, um, Scott's not here, so he can't really speak to it, but everything you see was done in camera optically. And they had a full crew of effects guys building cloud tanks and, you know, like the explosion when you see the bomb kind of go off was a balloon. Like, it wasn't a condom, it was but it was something like that. It was, yeah. it, was, it was three explosives. It was a gas bomb, it was dynamite, and it was, I think, Primacord. So you have a really fast one, a slower one, and then you have the, the catalyst, the big, so you get that mushroom effect. It was far enough, we still felt the heat. I mean, it was a pretty big explosion. Mm. Having worked on a lot of Michael Bay movies, I know explosions, and that was, <laughs> that ranked. That was, I, I can't say that to Bay, because he'll, like, he'll get mad, but. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, um, yeah, there's no visual effects in post with, with Chris. You can't fix it in post with Chris. It's all done in camera. When you see, uh, Oppenheimer dream of basically the fission of the atom when he's in Cambridge 1925 in bed. It was a device with lights and magnets that they put over his face that Chris was activating in the camera. Another thing about the camera that you guys may not realize, they invented black and white 70 millimeter IMAX film for this that didn't exist. I think Adele did a video in black and white IMAX something, but it wasn't that format, specific format. Uh, so we're the first ones to do that. The cameras are enormous. They're the size of half this table. And Hoyta RDP just like casually just films with it like this. Um, one caught fire in one of the hearings. I, I, was, oh. I was manning the paddles and, and I'm like, Keith. Because <laughs> it's literally smoking and, and they fix it. We had uh, one of the IMAX and Panavision tech with a smithy who's literally like a clockmaker uh, fixed this million dollar camera like in two days, just mm. fixed it. Uh, and we, um, and so we had these two IMAX 70 millimeter and then the two 65 uh, Panavision, um, the, the big format, the beautiful ones. Those were quiet. The IMAX were super loud and 
So you would have dialogue with the actors with this, with basically a train going by during the take. So our sound department, everyone on this film was just top of their game. You're, you're working with just the best artists you can. It's humbling actually, because you're literally working with the best of the best and you're like, oh my God, I hope I measure, mess up and measure up. Uh, and, um, and the camera department did an absolutely outstanding job considering there's like, what, four of them? It was a very small department mm. with this task with this, so. You'd think it'd take that many people just to hold the camera up. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, these things, I held one. There's no joke. They're very, and the mags are huge. It's 70 millimeters, it's just twice the size of the regular film mm -hmm. format we've, we've all seen. You had a question? Oh, yeah, more questions. I just had a question about, I don't even, oh, Mike hates me. Anyway, um, when you, I'm old school. I only worked with film until Fincher, then we went digital. <coughs> Talk about the difference for Property Master with the film and digital. I love that everything about this film was in camera. That means a lot. Being a member of the Academy, that means a lot when you're voting on production design. That means a lot when you're just talking about visual effects or special effects. So just tell me a little bit if, if, about the process of film versus video. Yeah, when I, st I started in the early 90s and we filmed everything on film, obviously, and then we went to digital. Um, I, I mean, for us, you know, sometimes it's, it's something is like you can't have a specific pattern. Back in the early days, before the Alexas and so forth, you couldn't have a specific like more pattern or something because it would mess with the, with the camera. Um, but I see a return to film generally uh, lately, you know, with, with, we did Jurassic World on film, we did this one on film. I mean, it's, it's coming back. I think people, more people want the film feel. I mean, it's still so cooler. You, plus you have time in between, you have to check the gate, they've changed the mags, you get a minute, like, oh, we get this thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, generally I prefer it because <coughs> I started. A little known fact, I started as a camera assistant um, and I sucked terribly at it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, film is cool, man. It's, it's, the, it's the way, uh, you know, I think film ought to be. Over here? Over here in green. Hey, uh, this has been really interesting to learn about all things. I was really excited for, the, for this panel. Regarding, I guess, any period films, whether it's Oppenheimer or any other ones you've worked on, what would you say is the most difficult regarding historical accuracy, either decade or, I'm not gonna say century, that's, that's, that's too vague, but like I guess decade-wise, what's been the most difficult historical uh, film or period film to get as accurate as possible? Uh, it's, you know, it's, I've done a few period films. Um, they're all difficult in their own way. Um, you know, when you're working with like a war film, you're working with muskets and black powder. I've done a few of those. That's a challenge because it's a little bit more dangerous and conventional firearms and because there's open powder and such. Um, generally speaking for props, I mean, it's anytime you're speaking about technology that's ancient, that's historical, you have to make sure it works because that's how you sell it as technology. So, you know, sometimes you have to hire a clockmaker or you have to hire someone who can you know, repair a horse carriage. I mean, there's a lot of these, or a gunsmith or a blacksmith. So there's a lot of these things, you know, they all have their challenges. I, I, the easy part of, of a historical film is that you actually, it's happened already, so you have a frame of reference. Doing a science fiction film, it's subjective. You have to, uh, you know, give the director a bunch of drawings and they'll pick something. Uh, with a historical picture, with a period film, you say, hey, this is what they had, what do you want? And it's, uh, what do you think, Greg? 
you know, like you said, getting keeping things working. Like our oscilloscope was a big prop. Um, it's a cathode ray tube, and they burn out. And most of the ones we came across didn't work, or we couldn't get anything. We found one that worked. Pam found us one, mm -hmm. and then the whole time you're just hoping it doesn't, you know, crap out in the middle of the take. So you're constantly babying that, or you know, here's a here's an example. These are great, but it nothing happens on this. But these things go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the middle of a take, these things can like just go south. So you're constantly and they will staying ahead of it and hoping that it you know it works. That your projector bulbs don't burn out or the projector motor or those little belts inside. Anything that moves is hard. And you spend a lot of time preparing to have backup so that you can fix it really quick on the day because you don't want to be stuck with nothing, you know. Yeah, we have a say, if you have one, you have none. Uh-huh. And yeah. luck plays a huge part in this. Don't kid yourself. It's, we're very lucky sometimes. Like, oh my God, we did that. It's, it's amazing. I think it's, also to your question, um, you know, we're modern day people, we have to make sure things are OSHA compliant. So um, with a lot of historical props, the first thing we look at is we have to remove asbestos. We have to be able to identify the materials that are in that. Um, I do a lot of vintage camera booms. They all have seat belts. They didn't have seat belts in the 20s and 30s. They could have cared less. So you know, the, the first thing we look at is how can we make it safe so that people can use it nowadays. And then it's also the ease of use because there's a reason why, well, you, you did, um, scenes with people in news news crews you know um, people would study to be camera operators and all that they would spend a long time learning how to work those that equipment you know Greg doesn't have that much time to show them what to do so sometimes we will activate them somebody else can activate it off camera with a remote control you know we, we're really fo I mean in my business we're really focused that it looks good on screen you know we we, we certainly realize that you know to us you know, we are going to take any kinds of intrinsic value out of this item and we are going to make it into a prop. And so if something is so rare and so unique and we come across those things, we send it to a museum. I mean, we have things in the Smithsonian, we have things in museums all across the United States and England that we go like, oh, you know, you should have this. That, I shouldn't have this. So, um, yeah, we're, we're realistic. Safety is the first thing that we think about and then we build from there. But the same, um, the same token, when you're Working with the prop, yeah, you want it, you want the prop to look good and look great and look amazing on screen. You want an insert, but at the end of the day, it has to work with the actor. Mm -hmm. So if that means modifying the thing so it's easier for the actor to use, uh, making it lightweight, uh, you know, we got uh, we got Thor's hammer to weigh less than an iPhone on the last mm -hmm. Thor, mm -hmm. because they're doing this all day, and after a while, it's gonna. So we had to make it so lightweight that they were able to do these moves very complex while they're also on wires. And so you have to do this R&D so that it works with the actor. In the case of a Marvel film, you have the best visual effects on the planet available to you, so you don't really have to worry about that necessarily. Uh, you know, with Chris Nolan, it's a much more difficult approach because everything has to be live, real, on camera, in camera, and so forth. Mm. Uh, but again, my number one priority, I mean, accuracy and Everything else is important, obviously, in the look of the picture, but the actor comes first. The actor's comfort, their safety first, evidently, but uh, their safety, their comfort, and the ease of use of the product, of the, the, the prop you're giving them. Because you're filming the actor, not the prop, necessarily.
All right, we have time for one more question. I think you've had your hand up. Sorry, behind you. If you didn't get your question answered today, we will be down at the booth in the West Hall, so please come by and, and say hi and ask. Uh, I, I was pointing to the woman back there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Hello, thank you so much for this panel. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about uh, working closely with the costumes department, doing things like rings, watches, glasses. Um, how did those early talks go, and in what ways do you have to sort of defer to each other, play nice between departments, and make sure both of your priorities are being met with the characters? Uh, well, I, I always start, my, my first day I go introduce myself to the costume designer, they're typically hired before me, uh, and I'm friends with most of them, they're always awesome. And we, you know, I always come in with my breakdown and some research, um, and I always offer up things you know, if they want to, you know, for Oppenheimer, we, we made the belt buckle for um, his New Mexico look and things like this and his cufflinks. So you try to, you know, offer things up because you're going to work with them very closely. Um, being married to a customer helps also. I know a bunch of them. Uh, but uh, the, again, the participation, you know, it's, it's, it's very, I've been blessed. I've worked with some of the best, Maya, Maya Rubio and, Ellen Mirosnik in this case, and people like that who were in Sonia Hayes, people who are just incredible artists and, and collaborators. Um, and you, you have to do that with every department, the set decorator as well. I mean, we often think that the prop department and set decoration are like John at the hip. We are, because the props live on the set, we, we add layers. But the actors wear, wear the clothes and we add accessories to them. So it's the same relationship, it's very symbiotic, and, and you have to nurture that and be, um, you know, uh, be very collaborative with everyone. All right, I think we are about out of time, so thank you all for joining us thank today. You. Thank you, Guillaume, Greg, Pam. Um, please come down to the West Hall, uh, booth 4401. You can see some of the uh, some of the props that we talked about here today, including the gadget, the uh, countdown clock, uh, Life magazine. Something going. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you, you nice all for being you. here today. Come by and say hi and hi. listen to our podcast, Prop Talk. Thanks for being here. <laughs>